Hello and welcome to Caged In, the podcast where we go through the career of Nicolas Cage week by week, film by film, to find out if he's the father of the year or the deadbeat dad of cinema. In doing so, I get a guest along and ask them, are they a Nick Cage fan? What was their first and what is their favourite Nick Cage movie? As well as using my unique scoring system of, does he have bad hair? Does he do a crazy voice? Or does he freak out? To join me this week and answer those questions, I have Daryl Bear of Sudden Double Deep, the free films linked by one word podcast. If you're not listening to Sudden Double Deep, change that immediately. Daryl joined me to talk about Brian Taylor's 2017 film, Mum and Dad. We go into spoilerific detail for the film, so if you have not seen it, now is your chance to go and watch it. If the time of listening to this, it happens to be on any streaming platforms, there is a Google Doc in the show notes, which will show you where you can stream it in your region. Uh, at the current moment of recording, this is only available to buy or rent uh, online or get a Blu-ray like I did. I picked it up for relatively cheap in the UK. Um, but yeah, support support physical media. It's it's great. And uh, there's a great Q&A from uh, Cage, Selma Blair and Brian Taylor on the disc for this. So be sure to do pick it up if you if if you're so inclined but i will i will not waffle on too much and i will join you at the end of the episode so now it's time to get raging with cage this week we're here to talk about a jet black horror comedy starring nicholas cage Selma Blair, Anne Winter, Zachary Arthur, Lance Hendrickson, and directed by friend of the podcast and previous guest, Brian Taylor. Of course, I am talking about mum and dad. With me today, I have a man who is used to talking about three films linked by a word. I thought I'd cut in some slack and just give him one film to watch. <laughs> Caged in with me today is Daryl Bear of Southern Double Deep. How are you, Daryl? I am wicked. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's, it's an absolute, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, obviously, before we get talking about um, mum and dad, I always ask three questions up at the start, and that the first one is always: Are you a Nicolas Cage fan? Absolutely, like without a shadow of a doubt. Are you? Um, yeah, like he's somebody who um, I think he gets. Uh, I think you know, in the last 10 years, especially he's become very memeable online and that's kind of people kind of chip away at him a bit. Um, but I think that's total horseshit to be honest. And he's more than a meme. Well, I, I get a lot of shit because obviously I go through these films. I'm kind of in this cage pit and, uh, just, <laughs> just like the last couple of days, uh, a mutual friend of ours, Liam Dempsey has been giving me shit because I recommended him the film stolen. Uh, yes you did <laughs> that's one of the films that came out in the last 10 years that for, for me yeah. who's somebody who's watched all of them it is a matter of uh it's not as bad as some of the 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 really bad nicholas cage it's no bangkok dangerous exactly for sure. exactly but yeah, yeah. um 
So that's like getting like a, a paper cut in between your fingers is better than getting, you know, your knob stomped on. Exactly. Well, I think it was the thing yeah, I just sure. kind of swept away by Josh Lucas's performance in that film. Fair enough. This kind Fair of, enough. I always look at it as kind of like, I don't know, mixture of like the 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 third Gruber brother and Tom Noonan from <laughs> Last Action Hero. Oh, man. <laughs> it's like, it's definitely one of his, oh, dear, I'm in trouble with the IRS films, isn't it, though? Yes. It's, it's of that, yeah. Yeah. You, you can kind of tell these days, he's really good at like, he picked some projects, like the one we're about to talk about, um, which you can tell there wasn't really much money behind it. And then hearing your great interview you did with the director some months back, um, yeah, he pretty much said, you know, there was it was this is a, a modestly budgeted film. But then, then you know, you can tell he's he's kind of doing it for the love. He's not doing it to obviously pay his enormous tax bills. But even even that, like, he's got like a massive like sense of humour about it because there's a guest I had on this, Todd Farmer who talked about uh, when they were making Drive Angry. And uh, there's a scene in that where Nick Cage is holding up, like, some money. And uh, he said, like, I better keep an eye on that because it hasn't mm. it hasn't done me well up until this point. He's obviously, like, self-aware enough to know that, like, yeah. he, he, he did fuck up with that money buying ca- castles and, like, haunted houses. Dinosaur heads. And, yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah, there's... Uh, I like to make the link that he, he is an actor who likes to take risks um, in that he bought that dinosaur skull and he outbid Leonardo DiCaprio. Somebody who arguably can play it safe in the fact that like he will only do films now that like they're Oscar contenders or... Yeah, nothing. for sure. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Whereas Nick Cage will go, I'll roll the dice on a straight-to-DVD film that shot over a well, interesting directors as well he's not just going for the heavy hitters he's going for people that you know have that have faith in him to do the right thing within the role mm-hmm. um whether it's in stuff like mandy or like he dialing it back 20 years to like adaptation you know he's, he's somebody that's always and you know like i, I think it's it's due to his his uh, ability to dial into any kind of performance uh, more so than it would be anything to do with, you know, the fact of his, leg- you know, the the legacy of his family and stuff. Uh, the f- I was weird. Like the first time I think you and I spoke on Twitter was around the time I watched the film Brubaker mm-hmm. for the first time, which is a Robert Redford prison reform movie from I think it's the it's like 1980, but it's set in the late 60s, and that's Nicolas Cage's like first film role where i think he plays a like a named character in, in it so and even then he's like blinking you miss yeah, him yeah. but like from from something like that i'm working with robert redford way back in 1980 so then you know fast times at regiment high and all of that you know he's and peggy sue got married which i think is really like is saccharine as all hell but i love it because of it. it's unashamedly saccharine um he's you know he's worked with some greats and he's, he's taken some risks and they haven't always you know sometimes the house wins Sometimes you end up with a direct DVD cover and your your gun fist is in your chest. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. So um, obviously it's, it's good to know that you're a Nick Cage fan because obviously this podcast would, would be over now if, <laughs> if, if you weren't. But uh, what was your introduction to Nick Cage? What was the first film you ever saw him in? Right. I think due to my age, uh, I had to think about this. I think it was probably The Rock and I'd have seen that, you know, whenever that was first on the either on telly or available to rent on video. 
after its release. And then in very quick succession, it would have been Con Air and Face Off, like the Holy Trinity, mm-hmm. basically. Um, and then I think, yeah, 2000, I had a pirate VHS copy of Gone in 60 Seconds. Perfect. Yeah, that's that's the first one. And then and the first film of his I owned on DVD was 8mm. That's a cheerful film for you. Well, that, yeah, and it's really interesting, that film, because apparently it was supposed to be even darker than it was. Oof. Like, Joel Schumacher had uh, enlisted a load of actual, like, L.A. Uh, BDSM, like, fetish scene, like, regulars, yeah. and filmed all these scenes, and, like, uh, the studio went, the subject matter is already a bit too like yeah. up there. Like we we need to cut the, out all um, this. Real, it's like the William Freakin stuff for um, for cruising as yeah. well. He filmed all the stuff in the the uh, in the leather bars, and then the, the studio was like, no, 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 none of this. This is this is uh, this is this is porn. This is gay porn. Well, let's hope we yeah. don't get a James Franco uh, like film oh, version of God. the missing footage of eight millimeter because that would yeah be... fingers crossed i'll say that the, the most recent cage film that i saw in the cinema mm-hmm. was a press screening of left behind wow wow yeah that was that was like weirdly comedic like people were just sitting in there and we were just laughing throughout thank thankfully it wasn't one of the screenings where you've got like you know I've many members, you know, filmmakers there. I don't think any you know, the publicity people just outside handing out bottles of water, but we were just in there, just like laughing away through how how terrible that film is. Yeah. Did you get like a goodie yeah. bag with like uh, a copy of like the the new Gideon Bible and like uh, oh, some rosary beads? Because did did they didn't even bother giving me the you know you didn't even get like a goodie bag with the DVD of the original version or anything <laughs> on it? Like I think they made a couple of those back in the nineties. And it's just, yeah, that, that's a that's a weird ass film, man. Like, good grief, that's a payday and a half, though. Yeah, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a very odd one, and it feels like I always think like Nick Cage almost seems scared of the like religious aspect of it because his performance in it is so like wooden. He like gives nothing. It's like he's almost like yeah, not there. He is he is the Holy Ghost almost because like it's just a shell of his former self. Um, so, The Rock is a solid first film, and obviously going straight into like the testosterone trilogy as well. Um, <laughs> That's it. What yeah. is your favourite of those three films? This is obviously like a big point, and it's kind of recently on Twitter I've seen. It's kind of it keeps being brought up by a lot of people. It's it's one of those perennial uh, uh, Twitter voting things, in the same way that. Uh, Terminator 1 or Terminator 2. Like, yeah, you're constantly seeing alien or aliens. Like, you're constantly seeing those cycle round, and it's just like, can we, yeah. Um, I look for me, it's gonna be face off. I, 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 you know, I really dig uh, Con Air and, and The Rock, but for me, it's, it's all about the John Woo. It's, uh, it's the culmination of, of, you know, the best parts of him taking his Hong Kong style. Uh, and marrying it with with a very American sensibility, mm-hmm. um, and the fact that you've got like John Travolta in there, just you know, they they they, they make a, they're like yeah, they 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 work really well harmoniously together in a film. And as I just listened back to uh, your Snowden episode, and you guys were talking about how uh, yeah, it's it's funny how they they've not had a career where we've we've seen more films with them mm-hmm. paired up. 
for sure. Well, there's um, there's great footage as well. I think you can find it easily online of like those guys like on set and like Cage will be going at Travolta and like obviously he's in this kind of what he calls his nouveau shamanic like mode and he's really going at Travolta and then like they obviously call cut and then they're just like laughing and joking and like Travolta can't <laughs> contain himself because he's like he's like that's great that's great and it, it seems like the film that is fun and that everybody who made it had fun and I've, I've spoken to Nick Cage's um standing around the time mm. he said like it was everybody on that was having so much fun, but it's not indulge. It's not like self-indulgent, and like mm, yeah, like a lot of um, it's like you know to rag on it. But Ghostbusters twenty sixteen like sounds like everybody had so much fun on that set, and you can tell everybody had fun making it. But I think it kind of lost something in the way because of that, because of the lack of structure. Whereas, you know, John Woo, you know, John Woo's, he's, you know, he's, he's a bit nutty, you know, going, doing things like having expert marksmen on, on sets of his earlier films to actually, you know, fire into, into sets because it was cheaper to do it that way. You know, then like obviously coming to America for Broken Arrow and basically being told like, no, you, you know, you can't do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> that doesn't, that's not going to work here. And then, you know, he then capped off his, his great, you know, American films with uh with, I'd say, the worst Mission Impossible, but still, you know, it's a, still still a solid film. Yeah. I dig it. I dig it. Perfect. But yeah, like Nick, Nick Cage in, 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 I think that's his best performance out of the three personally as well. Um, yeah, I just, I think he's great in it. Perfect. Well, what is, we've obviously talked about your favourite of the Testosterone trilogy, <laughs> but what is your favourite Nick Cage film of all time? Right. Favourite film? That Nick Cage, I think this is a funny one because like my favorite performance would be adaptation, but my favorite film is Wild at Heart. I, I you know, I'm a massive Lynch fan and I think he's he's incredible in it. Yeah, it's, I, it's wild. It's, and I love, I love the pairing up of him and Laura Dern, and but more especially him and Willem Dafoe because I, I, yeah. I think those guys are very much cut from the same cloth. They kind of have this, like, I will just put all my cards on the table and go with it and like yeah it, it is funny to think that we almost lived in a world where you know we'd superman was was nick cage and like i just that was one thing i my first real like after seeing you know the the holy trinity uh as a you know as a early teens was like starting to read in magazines and stuff and have about him you know like oh he's gonna be he's gonna be superman he's gonna be superman and they're just going yeah, I can. I I can't see it, but then that's probably a good thing because nobody could see um, Michael Keaton as Batman. You know, when you know, I remember. I remember even that as a kid, where you know, it, it being the news and people mocking the idea, and it's just nuts. But uh, but then, like, then a few years later, we get Willem Dafoe as like the Green Goblin in three Spider-Man films. You just go, that could have been Nick Cage. Yeah for me like he could have totally done a green goblin here and you know i don't know he was like desperately gunning for you know superman for years and there's a couple others that he got he he missed out on and then for him to kind of end up end up with which is a horrible way to put it but like ghost rider which is you know those films are what they are i think he does really good with them but like 
Yeah, I've gone right around the houses already. Back to Wild at Heart. Wild at Heart, I yeah, I just it's it's David Lynch, so it's always going to be high up on my my list anyway. But like the fact he's worked with like you know Werner Herzog as well, and like I was really poo pooing the idea of that Bad Lieutenant movie because I was like, just don't why why fuck with the you know with that? That's, that's a great great film. And then like Port Call New Orleans is is brilliant. It's just absolutely gonzo bonkers, and I love it. Yeah, it's got. It's just got some real. I don't know. It's, it borrows from the first film, and there's a lot of like. That's a film that's got a lot of tension around it because Abel Ferrara, yeah. being Abel <laughs> Ferrara, is it, gonna is gonna kick up some shit, and then you got obviously like Werner Herzog, who is a man who got shot and kind of like brushed it off, and it like yeah, totally. So like I don't, like I and it's got this. I don't know. It's I yeah. I think that film is is great, and that was. Uh, that was weirdly like because I took a massive hiatus on this podcast. There was like that was like the fight. That was the final film before I took this hiatus, and nice. I was like, oh, that, "That feels like a nice place to go out." But then, for sure, I got this yearning to come back to Cage <laughs> two years later, and then it's like here we are talking about yeah. And you mentioned uh, Ghost Rider, which obviously and Superman, and I feel it's really nice in Teen Titans go to the movies. Mm. They they cast Nick Cage as su- the voice of Superman because it's a real it's a real nice like wink to the fans who like people like you and me who would have known about that story of Superman Lives and like would have been like ah oh, what could have been yet yeah, we get to see For we get sure. to hear him at least and yeah it's- I mean I'm like, in, in my heart of hearts like when they announced that Michael Keaton. Uh, and Ben Affleck would be returning for Flash, well, basically the, the Flash movie. In my heart of hearts, I'm going, just if you could get like a, one scene with Nicolas Cage in the Superman gear, I'll be ecstatic. Perfect. And yeah, you mentioned uh, Ghost Rider. Obviously, Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance was directed by Neville Dean and Taylor, the uh, directors of both the Crank films and Gamer. Mm-hmm. And obviously, once they split ways, Brian Taylor went on to direct Mum and Dad, which is obviously today's topic of discussion. Hey, uh, can I go to a movie with Riley tonight? Yes, right. Your grandparents are coming for dinner tonight, remember? Awesome. Grandpa telling his disgusting Vietnam stories. Take my advice. Don't ever have kids. Everything just revolves around you, doesn't it? Yeah, whatever. What is the rush today? It's like they're waiting for a buffet. What's going on? Is that McKenna's mom? Multiple reports are now coming in of parents murdering their own children. Listen to me. We have to get out of the house before mom and dad come home.
Are you two all right? We're not coming out, okay? You have to leave. You're going to help us, let's go! This is a really great idea, honey. I forgot your parents. That was tonight. So was this the first time watching Mum and Dad for this podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely my first time with this. It's one that's been on the list for for a while, like since 2017. It's like, I will get to it. Um, it's weirdly enough, and I said this to you the other day, actually. Um, we've been over this podcast now. We're in our fifth year, and we've not covered a Nicolas Cage film in all that time. I don't know how it happened. We had this the other week with something as well, like with, with another massive actor. We just went, right, oh, we must have covered him, but nope, nope, not done it. There's just so many weird little blind spots, even when you do something as scattergunned as what we do. And I, I can't fathom how we've actually managed to miss Nicolas Cage. I think it's just some of it is just literally the luck of the words that come out of the, the, yeah, the yeah. tin because we pick by ran, you know, on random. So, yeah, bonkers. Yeah, this was, yeah, my first time. And it's this lovely, it's like 84 minutes or something as well. It's... It's a nice slice. I love that. It doesn't mess yeah. about with its its runtime, and it's obviously a one idea film, and kind mm-hmm. of just wrings everything out of that that it can. Yet at the same time, kind of leaves you with questions that you want to know. Obviously, it's <laughs> quite ambiguous as to yeah why it is that things are happening, and obviously the things that are happening the the kind of the elevator pitch for this film and it's a perfect it's a perfect way to sell this to anyone as well to watch it it's like elevator pitch for this is parents want to kill their children that is it that's kind of like and you can kind of see how that could be sold to a studio do you know what i mean it's like yeah i mean it's it's basically yeah it's, it's touching on things that say hitchcock did with the birds like you never find out why those birds go nuts and do their thing that's kind of what makes it kind of freaky um the crazies as well the georgia georgia romero film um that the whole urban in like sorry suburban environment thing for me was very much reminded me of the opening 10 minutes of the dawn of the dead remake where you've got those those shots of just that little cul-de-sac that little community and it just look, looks, you know, it's the modern equivalent of that white picket fence ideal that was in the 50s. Is this now this, you know, this suburban environment where everybody knows everybody and yeah, and like really expensive looking houses. And yeah, there's, there's just so much like that, that whole kind of idea of just like from, from, from nothing. We see that static thing in the film. But like um, there's a really terrible John Cusack and Samuel Jackson film based on a Stephen King novel uh called cell uh i i loved the book when it came out um the film is 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 a trash fire that i didn't get <laughs> like more than two thirds of the way through but there's that whole idea of that as well like you know what what was this was this a uh, is it some black like, government thing or is it some other government invade you know on us so like um and just yeah this, that whole kind of crazy that all that the final act of kingsman as well Mm-hmm. where everybody just goes bonkers because of the, they don't have that chip in their head yeah, yeah. and all their cell phones just make them go nuts. And yeah, it's, it is that kind of that idea of like, well, is technology being weaponized against us? And what's scarier than the idea of of just uncontrolled, this uncontrollable urge to, to, to kill your, your offspring? So obviously a big part of this is parents going after their children and 
Do you think, personally, that if it came to you v your parents, would you come out of it alive? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I've, see, my mum's four foot ten, so I've definitely got the reach on her. <laughs> I could, I could, yeah. <laughs> uh, my dad, my dad, though, he's, he's, a, he's a sprightly and wiry fuck, so I'm not entirely sure... I don't know how that would work out. Me and him, we kind of look alike as well. So it'd be like uh, it'd be like a Mirror World episode of um, of uh, Star Trek. Um, we, I don't know who the bad version would be, but just us two, like you know. Yeah, or or like Jordan Peele, yeah. us. Like yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Evil doppelganger. I get. I, Pretty much. I guess in this situation, you're unfortunately for your dad, he would be the evil one because, yeah, in this, it's the the parent, and it's portrayed in this really well and i think like obviously this is a film that you kind of know the like i knew the premise going in and right. pick up on things straight away and like they, they play with it really well there's a scene really early on and like the score works really well when um nicholas cage's character brent is tickling the sun but it's like kind yeah. of done in this like menacing way and he's like he looks like he's like grat like grabbing him where he's just like kind of playing with him a bit rough and like kind of like foreshadows thing and there's there is the classic like bomb under the table in this like and it's something like a, a little nugget that is is left to you obviously knowing what will happen eventually is the talk of the uh baby that is going to be born by yeah oh god by, yeah by, yeah yeah, Kendall's sister is pregnant, uh, Selma Blair's character. And when when you know kind of what is going to happen and like that is mentioned, it's like, I, I, I don't, please don't go there. Yeah. No, I've already seen like Mother in the last few years. I don't need to see, you know, anything else like that. I like Once you've ticked that one off your list in a film, it's like, right, they've done it. I don't need to see this again. Thank you very much. You know, I am done. No, that Mr. Bill... Uh, like score is more like um it's like sound design isn't it and it works like um like really well with like uh like with the insane editing in this film as well like there's there's so much going on visually and you know, obviously because like brian taylor is somebody you know he he's a very visual director and again a lot of what you're doing with this because you, you're limited with budget limited for time you everything's told in shorthand as well like you don't you can't fuck around this is basically a two-act film there's no there is no third act to this and that's kind of like it's this tantalizing thing as well because you do get to that final couple minutes and you're just like <gasps> and then you're just like where's the rest of my fucking movie yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's it's. I like it because yeah, it it it's kind of it plays into that kind of dark humor of the whole thing as well. It's like it ends with like a wry smile almost, like it's really knowing, which I think is why it works. Well, to to the point of the score, one of the things I really like about this is the use of like uh, either like needle drops mm. in certain points. So there's uh, rock sets. Um, must have been love. Must have been love. In, yeah. in, in like a, a moment and. And the use of like humor in this as well. So like right before that needle drop, we get like the introduction to a character who who basically looks like the poor man's um, Seth Rogen from Knocked Up. Like he's this like boy boyfriend of the yeah of the of the pregnant Ginny, and he's there GoProing the birth. And again, a great use of kind of like 
a low budget will use like this kind of kinetic style of like camera like handheld cameras moving about and stuff like that but then when that song plays over like what is probably one of the most like harrowing moments in this film just just with the sheer like i don't know idea of uh, yeah a baby is obviously the thing that is the most pure and as a and you don't know how that scene's going to play out either Mm -hmm. like obviously in your heart of hearts you're like I hope nothing happens to this baby. But again, this is a film where it, we, we literally, before anything happens, the first thing we see is a mum in a car leaving her kid in the back seat while a train's about to hit yes. the tracks. And well, the train's on the tracks. This is about to hit the car. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, but yeah, and it's just like, oh, fuck. Okay, so this is, it's all out the window now. Anybody can, you know, the, the, anybody can go. Like, because that's normally the sacred thing in a film. Like, you know, you, you either don't kill the kids or you don't kill the dog. Mm-hmm. You know, which is why we know that Michael Myers in Halloween is 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 you know he's not not to be fucked with because he he straight up kills that that Alsatian and you're like okay, yeah, um, and yeah, just uh, we get like a, a Dusty Springfield song early on yesterday when I was young, and I just and that's over the, the opening credits as well, and I just love how it plays into the whole th- theme of the idea of that like Nick, you know Nick Cage's character is just. He he's going for a midlife crisis. He what he he misses those glory days of being a high schooler and being reckless and not having the responsibility. And same with Selma Blair, uh, Selma Blair's character. And she's she's just as she's really you know amazing in this. And just this whole idea of like this mid forties slump of like fuck is this what my life's ended up as? Uh, you know, like just this this the kind of waning, like worrying about like waning beauty and stuff like that. But w- when you're Selma Blair, it's a bit of a joke, really, because you know you're incredibly attractive. Um, but yeah, Nick, Nick Cage in this, he's like you know he's he you know we get this lovely amount of unhinged here, but it doesn't feel like un, like uncalled for or silly or he's just you know they they you know they've popped the snake out of the the bean can or whatever for no reason. It's like it's because he's just frustrated with his life you know he loves his kids he loves his wife but he's you know you can you can tell this that that static thing that sets all these parents off maybe it's just feeding into that one channel in their heads that just goes if if you guys weren't here i could live my dreams well yeah and that is like a thing that like plays into this film a lot is the obviously the the idea of parents and i i i am a parent so like i can I, i can understand it like I, I hate, yeah, I almost, I almost hate to say it, but like you, you get that thing of like, ah, <laughs> oh, like, oh, great, like, yeah, you, uh, I, I, I could be doing things, but I, I, I got this responsibility. But there is also uh, like this o- overwhelming sense of like, I've got this purpose and somebody I, I love. And like, what this film, like, I think plays with really well. And I think it's like really poignant to to now as well is there very much is this kind of generational divide in like especially like when it comes to like voting and stuff like that and Mm. uh, at the moment as well it is this kind of you you have two camps of like well fuck the old and like do you mean like this this generational thing of like it's it's the old the, the the parents like are out to get us and 
Well, this film does that really well in the fact that, like, when I was first thinking about this, I was like, well, it's not really focusing explicitly on, say, on the children in this. Well, one's, a, you know, one's a teenager, one's, one's a little boy, or the, uh, or the parents. But there is definitely this sense of, like, you've got the Generation Xers who were, like, you know, they're kind of, you know, like if you think the whole Gen X thing as well and what that, well, how they were being sold to via MTV and everything and, you know, you are the most important generation. You know, not realising that that's what every generation gets told. And, you know, they had they had grunge, they had, you know, everything they had in the in the 90s. They had the flannel shirts, you know, the, yeah. they, they had Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder as their, their you know, patron saints. Uh, and Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy and things like that. And that's great. That's amazing. But then, like, looking at the... the And look at the girl, especially the teenager in this, well, the, the teenage character. Um, I teach at college and at uni. So, like, I, I, I have to interact with, you know, Generation Ys every day. And, um, and yeah, they're... Or Generation Z, whichever it is. Anyway, they're, like... I, I, I see that side of things as well. And sitting... F- slap bang in the middle as as a as a millennial you know born in 1983 i i could you're kind of seeing both sides of this and just going right well like the the young people's perspective is like this could have just been a oh my god the plucky young kids have to thwart the older you know but they don't play like that they don't really throw in any um i was a uh, they don't throw any like um kind of teen dramery elements which another filmmaker or writer would have would have thrown in there's no like crazy references to like social media really or anything like that you know it's not all that you know kids be on facebook or anything you know kids be tiktoking there's none of that in here but then by that same token like you know we, we do see the the gen the, the gen x the gen x is in this we've got you know again someone blair she's she's you know, a nice, nice slice and an incredible actress. And then you've got Nicolas Cage, who is somebody who's got this, I mean, he's, he's had this amazing career and like life, but we've, we've seen him in various modes of insanity and, and, and that throughout the years, but like to play somebody who is like just regret, not regretting, but like kind of got this bittersweet memory of, of what it was like to be young again. And like, 10 pounds a penny you stick that guy back you know if you freaky friday this shit and you turn him into a teenager again he'd fucking hate it mm-hmm. it's just in his head it's his rose tinted ideal of like this was great you know i was doing donuts in my dad's car on the you know the with this girl's you know tits in my face and it was just the most amazing experience it's just like yeah dude but like go back to it was it really all that good you know well there's the whole idea in this as well that um to the point of like what what could have been and like where his life was and yeah that they they're like supposed to be punk rockers like and you kind of get that from like yeah like nick cage listening to like punk in the basement whilst well like yeah it's it scores it but you'd assume he was like that's what he'd be listening to whilst he's building the pool table in that flashback he's kind of got like mm. the, the baseball tee and like um you see him as a young guy mustache which yeah, there's there's a great story that Brian Taylor told me about like the guy they got to play Young Cage as well. He was just a guy kind of knocking about when they were doing pre-production. He went, <laughs> I did like I, I saw the like the kind of the the film circus had rolled into town. Do you do you want me to do do anything? 
I mean, I'll, I'll like be a runner, I'll be a PA for someone, I'll do something. And he went, has anyone ever told you you really look like young Nick Cage? And he's like, yeah, I've, <laughs> I've heard that. And he's like, well, I got the perfect, I got the perfect job for you. And it's like, imagine going like, I will be a runner to, right, get in this sports car. We're going to like rig mm. it up or whatever, or like, and then have this woman straddle you with a with her tits in your face it's like what a dream come true do you know what I mean (laughs) but immortalized love it I feel that one of the things yeah it really plays into and the the point I kind of like went around the houses to get to is that both these actors have like baggage that this film perfectly plays into like that obviously I don't know Selma Blair to me has always kind of been like that dark-eyed moody and mysterious and like cage is this wild man and when you like kind of get glimpses of their past of who that's yeah who they were before it's like i totally buy into that because it's a film that like uses our real world perception of them to go oh imagine imagine nick cage and selma blair were actually forced to live in a house that had like live laugh love like written on the wall and stuff like that like they'd (laughs) fucking hate it yeah yeah i that was a really nice that was almost like a yeah you're expecting to see some sort of uh yeah like oh it's prosecco o'clock on the wall or something it's definitely one of those like whoever did the the decor for that set that was just like yep that's that is that suburban like for for, for a lot of people suburban hellscape Mm -hmm. But it's it's a very you know safe uh, kind of environment that you wouldn't expect shit to go awry like this. Um, I will say, like watching this, seeing I mean I, th- I think the uh, the young guy in this uh, Robert T Cunningham, I think he's he's really good as Damon. But a couple things that really kind of stuck out for me is the fact that he's pretty much the only black guy we see in this, and he goes back to his dad, and his dad is unemployed alcoholic at home and you're just like okay and then like then the rest of the film he's basically like besides Nicolas Cage who gets you know he gets some like uh damage uh he's he gets like constantly like ragdolled yeah. with various like, fish hooked in the face falls down a flight of stairs like it's just like oh come on man <laughs> like you know the one character yeah, it's there. There is an interesting thing like early on when you know, obviously disapproving dads like, well, you know, I don't want you hanging around with that boy, and, and the daughter's like, well, we we all know why you don't want me hanging around with him, and it's this, uh, this un, you know, it's, it's unspoken, but it's like she's basically um, implying that her dad's, you know, racist. Where from the father's, you know, when we see Nicolas Cage, he's he's, you know, he's the character's saying that, you know, he's two years older than you and I, I was that age once and I remember what I was like yeah, yeah. when I was that age and so yeah definitely projecting this idea onto you know onto the onto Damon the character as well well the the the, the meeting of Damon and Brent is like is one of the one of the most like the first glimpses of real like raging cage in this when we get mm. that like beautifully delivered and that is one of the things that like i commend nicholas cage for in this film is like the way he delivers some of these batshit lines and at this point he says now the world you kids are living in things you've seen on the internet mouth to dildo dildo to ass ass to ass hi brent 
anal beads. And it's like, <laughs> there's only one mouth that a line like that could come out of. And that is yeah. his cage. And like, his delivery throughout Oof. this, like when, when they're trying to hack through the door, and well, they're trying to get into the basement once the kids finally lock themselves in. And uh, motherfuckers, you're gonna open this motherfucking yeah, door. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's just like that, like it's all and the the whole like uh, it's a sawzall. It means it's sawzall. That I love that callback because you get Selma Blair say it when obviously she's trying to trying to get through the door, but then in like the kind of finale of this film, Cage picks it up as they kind of. Selma Blair's got a meat tenderizer in hand and he's got the sawzall in his hand and he kind of Saws all oh, Yeah, and it's, yeah. it's this it's this deranged, like I don't really on point Nick Cage performance. And uh, Brian Taylor like perfectly said in an interview I watched today that uh, directing Nick Cage is like trying to direct the weather in that you <laughs> you, you, do, you don't you don't know what you're gonna get, you just kind of have to try and dress appropriately for it yeah and you'll you'll get something and like i almost need he said with both of them i I just let them do their thing and capture what is going on well it's like seeing the projects that he's definitely invested in like personally like you know your drive angries and your bangkok dangerouses and stuff like that you can tell it's a paycheck for him and he's not really all that bothered um but for something like this you know or say mandy where it's a case of like you know the underpants scene in mandy where you just basically got a camera a static camera on him and he's just going all out and you go for me that is the most interesting part of that film and it isn't the you know any of the 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 amazing cinematography or sound design or anything like that or the the kind of dreamlike aesthetic it's that moment in the film where it's like okay, this is somebody suffering a loss here. Mm-hmm. And he's channeling that and that is raw wound and just personified. And he's excellent in it. And we get here, this this kind of rage that kind of like, when he's having that, it's not even a row with, with Selma Blair's character after he, you know, smashes up, well, is about to smash up his, uh, his new pool table. Like he says, maybe there should be a fucking grown-ups zone and a fucking kid zone. Like he, he's like, we, you know, maybe we should be distancing ourselves from our kids, and we should have that time for ourselves. It's just like frost, parental frustrations mm-hmm. that just again, suddenly that thing snaps, and it's just like, okay, we're killing our kids now. Well, it, what like one of the themes of this film as well is, and like what is kind of bittersweet and beautiful about it is it takes this horrible situation because at the beginning we kind of see like through the flirtation with Selma Blair's character and her like old boss who can only kind of imagine is like by their conversation that was potentially like an old flame from pre-marriage and um, yeah like Nick Cage's performance when like he's he says like you're his secretary says your wife's on the phone he's like i told you not to bother me especially not with my wife like Hmm. their 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 marriage is kind of got to that stagnant stage where they're kind of just going through the motions they've they've got what is the ideal of a family they've got the nuclear family do you know what i mean the 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 husband and wife the the two the two perfect kids the, the suburban house but it takes this horrific event for those two to come together and it's like 
it almost feels like a weird analogy for just kind of how like horrific events can bring people together unfortunately it pushes them away from their kids but by the end of it even even they like kind of still love their parents and it's 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 weird it's confusing but it's i don't know it's left it on a really beautiful note yeah and it definitely does speak to that generational divide and you know like there's def- different lines in this about how you know you you know you might be disappointed in us but you know and like and it's and I, it, but different generations can speak to that. You know, parents say that very thing to their kids and, and kids the other way at a certain points in their life when they finally get to reconcile these things. And I'm, I'm so pleased that the, the teenage, you know, character especially wasn't, you know, a total, like, because you get a lot of these where it's like, how are we going to shut, especially because, you know, all this is, you know, written by grown-ups. How am I going to write a teenager? Well, I'm going to write them as this really obstinate, really difficult, you know, that they're they're really overly emotional. And she's not. Like, she's really level-headed. She's like, she's really thinking on her feet. She's really, like, whip-it smart. Like, the minute that they know there's gas being pumped into the, into the room that they're in, like, she has, like, a like an amazing, almost Looney Tune-esque plan involving a book of matches that you just go, holy shit, I would not have thought that. I'd just be there dead. It's great. It's, yeah, it's, I'm glad that they wrote that character as smart and capable and not a whiny teen. I'm doing air quotes yeah. in my hands, which is great podcasting, that you see in a lot of stuff. Well, I, I, I would much, I much prefer like the character of Carly to be the focus of this than, say, her friend Riley. Who, oh yeah who yeah. is that broad strokes like i've got rich parents i'm gonna rebel i've got a choker do you know what i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna buy yeah. drugs and smoke a joint like she she just reminds me of that staple you'd get in slasher films in the 80s so it's just like oh yeah i want you to die mm-hmm. i want to see you die horribly in fact i'm really surprised that they they pulled back on us and we, we yeah we get to see her strangled to death but i'm very surprised that she didn't get more of a a visceral and disgusting conclusion like because because you you got that impression from the pressure cooker conversation that Selma Blair's character was having with her mother earlier on that there's some real animosity there like some real deep-seated stuff and you think I was thinking oh my god she's going to walk in the room and she's going to have like fucking curling iron in a face or something like we we but it actually seems like I don't know it's, it's a little bit more they dial it back a bit there's some restraint early on um, which is kind of surprising. We don't even see, like, that first real instance where we know shit's gone, like, real bad is when all the parents are outside the school yeah. and the security guard's there and that little boy breaks through the crowd and then all we see is the aftermath as these scissors raise up in the air and they've got blood all over mm-hmm. them where the mum has basically stabbed her son to death with a pair of, like, you know, scissors from a handbag and it's just like, we don't see the the gore, the violence or anything and it's like, Oh shit! Something something's happened here. Well, I, I think perfectly. This film kind of like plays with that, as opposed to like the what is not seen. Like is it mm. is sometimes more scarier than like what what is For shown. Sure. And like you get that scene of the guy with the baseball bat just covered in blood, like getting his mail, <laughs> and that probably is more terrifying because you know what he's done, and it's like exchanges mm. between people when um uh is it cameron goes home and he speaks to his neighbor and he says like oh where's your daughter and she's like 
she's inside and it's like you hmm. know she's dead and <laughs> like with the with the housekeeper and she's kind of yeah. having that conversation then we kind of get the reveal of the mop like covered in blood it's like fucking hell and a, a, a moment that really really like i don't know like seared into my like retinas when i saw it was all of the like new dads staring through oh glass that's horrible yeah that truck shot yeah at their baby that's yeah but i was saying this because i was watching this with jeanette um wife and co-host of the, my podcast um it, like the, the whole thing like the reason they're not attacking is because they don't know which is theirs i think that's the mm -hmm. So they're all there. They know that one of them is theirs, but none of them are making a move because they don't know which one. And that is just as scary because they're just, they're just poised, ready to just rip their own children to shreds, which is a horrible thing to say. One of the things I really wanted to talk about about this film was the use of like cameos. I'm not sure if you like uh, spotted a couple yes, of those. So one absolutely. of them being the, uh, I think, more famous in the US than the UK. But Dr. Oz, like having uh, discussing on the news about uh, how in pigs that they sometimes like turn on their young and, and kill them. And mm. then a fantastic one from uh, the writer Grant Morris as well as a, a sweaty yeah. uh, like expert. Yeah, he's a expert. Yeah, absolutely. And we've got Bo Keen Woodbine in this as a, as a parent a little later on. So that was really kind of cool. I loved seeing that guy in everything. I love that he's in like Spider-Man Homecoming. Uh, he's a great, great actor. Um, and yeah, just like to see those little cameras, it really reminded me of, um, again, it's funny, it's like something like the Dawn of the Dead remake, which you know, lots of cameos from people in the original Dawn of the Dead throughout that, like you know, Ken Forey's in it and that. And it's, it's, just, it's just having these people that you go, oh, it's that person. And it helps to kind of anchor different points of the, of the film because this is like, for something that's only 80-odd 80, 80 minutes long, it's a, like, again, it's so um, mental. Yeah, mental. It's, it's just fucking mental. Um, but in the fact that you've got like you'll have this this mad scene of like mad violence which is just just about to kick off and then just as it's on the on the precipice mm -hmm. we have a flashback to give you context of the relationship between those two characters it's it's a very strange choice and it's one that i'm sure a lot of people like you you either invested in it or you go no i can't i ain't, I ain't for this and i totally understand that but for me i, I really dug it because it was just that, that that extra context. I mean, a lot of filmmakers would like build that into the before, maybe again. Maybe the thing of this is it is only two acts, but it doesn't have an opening act or it doesn't have a, a middle act even. It, we literally go from from the establishing stuff to the, the madcap nonsense that you'd normally have in the final final third of a film. Um, but what a final third though, right? Well, I, I always think that like this is the kind of idea that would have been used maybe in like of late especially the last like five years or so like anthology tv series have kind of become like a big thing so like this could work as like a black mirror episode it almost like feels like that yeah. kind of that that premise that charlie bricker would come up with but like i'm so glad it kind of got that like feature length treatment to it and those those cutaways to the yeah to the past are great and i love the edit points on them as well like when Selma Blair's talking to the young Carly and it's um it kind of goes from her being like oh you should never be scared of 
and then like kind of I think like cuts right back to like her trying to break out of this door and then yeah eventually putting a coat hanger through Cameron's face and it's like fuck like that's that literally fish hooking that guy it was just yeah that's that's it's funny it's like I, I you know I can watch all the gory shit you like but if it's something that's like Again, something like that, or like, did you ever watch the terrible film? But the uh, uh, is it a wax museum? The with um, uh, Paris Hilton's in it. House of Wax. Yeah, House of Wax. That's the one. There's, it's, it's, it's not that good. But there is one moment in it where somebody gets their Achilles tendon cut off, and I like, I was just like, it just, I just literally just like, yeah, it, it really has. Uh, an effect of me and then something like this seeing that poor guy get, get a wire coat hanger through because it's a relatable thing that could actually happen to you it's like when i see somebody get shot in a film i'm like no idea oh, no frame of reference for this <laughs> i think one of the things that's really fun about this film is it it makes you think of that thing i used to do it weirdly when i was a kid of like what would i do if somebody broke in to the house right now like what could i use like in any room like to kind of like fend for myself and like i think this film can like bring up that conversation in you and bring up those thoughts of like i don't know when i was a kid i was like right so i'm in the i'm in the toilet i could use the air freshener to like spray (laughs) them in the eyes and then like i could use the towel to like choke them out or something like that and i think like the interesting uses of of kind of household implements to to, it's uh, it's like you're, you're you know it's a bit of, I don't know if it's a tired thing now I don't know if people still do it but in my days of you know my my first proper job when I was seventeen I was I was uh, a projectionist at a cinema and like I'd I'd spend hours in that giant projection booth with all of the the projectors in there just thinking like what would my what would my plan be, be in a zombie invasion like <laughs> what would I do if I was at work if I was here right now and I'm six miles from home do I stay here how would I get back you know, where's safe? Like even like in the flat I'm in now, like I know because I'm on the on the first floor, it means that I'm safer than if I was on the ground floor. <laughs> if there was a zombie attack, it's ridiculous. But you think about these things, it's just like, and I they, they actually they name they name check um, World War Z in this as well, and obviously they mean the the film from was it 2010, 2012 or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, the book's so much better but like they, they, they literally talking about that idea of these like and it's fast zombies right it's the you know the ones that run and that's basically what the parents become in this the scariest thing i think is the fact that they are only attacking their own offspring like they're 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 not attacking other people's kids only their own and which is why we get that that fake out when when uh damon first meets um Nicholas Cage's character where you go oh well he's not gonna hurt him because it's not his child and it's like yeah but he's fucking his daughter okay right <laughs> and then <laughs> it's just like oh okay that makes that makes some sense I get that now well one of the things this film does well and to the point of like household implements is when like you kind of like when you know if you look yeah if you kind of look at the cast list you're like oh Lance Hendrickson's in this and yeah. like if you're kind of clock watching you're like he hasn't turned up and it's <laughs> it's this great kind of like what would be like the kind of third act of this in this like moment where the parents are kind of like poised and ready to kill their kids we just get this like moment of perfect levity at that moment where the doorbell goes and it's like 
they're almost brought back down to being kids themselves yeah. because it's like, oh shit, yeah, we were, oh, your parents were coming around tonight, and it's like, uh, like Cage looks dishevelled. He's got like Fruit Loops all stuck to his face, and Lance Hendrickson's turned up to the party prepared because he's got this kind of like fucking like little, little stabby knife with him. Yeah, and he's like ain't fucking about. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I knew he was in the film. I, I had no idea in what context, but then like that, that line of just like, oh, you know, I forgot, honey, your parents are, your parents have come over. And it's just like, oh God. And I, Jeanette sat, sat next to me and she just looked at me. She's like, yes. And then that was it. You know, it's, it's on like Donkey Kong. That last, that last 15 minutes where you've got like Nicolas Cage running around chasing his son while Lars Henriksen's stabbing him in the upper thigh. Like that looks painful, man. Like what are you doing? But then like everything involving the, um, that car as well, that Pontiac Firebird Trans Am. Oh my God. Like I'm not a car guy, but that's, that's, um, a few years ago when I lived uh, in Haringey, Green Lanes, like, you know, actually in London and not in fucking Barnet where I am now, um, there was there was somebody who had two Pontiac Firebird Trans Ams that they, like, just, just in front of their house and we'd pass them every day and just be like, wow. Like, they just seem so out of place, like, really incongruous, uh, and, you know, on a, on a London street as well. You know, everybody's there and they're, they're you know, very very sensible cars and these two giant american muscle cars there and you're just like holy shit yeah but it really goes to the point that obviously he is just hell bent on kind of like surviving and trying to kill his son because by the end of this he's in the car and he doesn't care about it anymore he's like i mean like it's kind of his pride and joy up until that point and like yeah, when he uses a sledgehammer or something on the roof as well. Brett smashes the glass roof, and then yeah, it just just him going like coming through it, and then and then that's I think it was around then that we get the flashback to we because some of these flashbacks are connected. We see you know the, the conversation that uh, Cage has with his son about because his son puts a a bird, a dead bird in the well, it's it's yeah. half dead in the car to, for safety, and the car, and it's obviously flapped around shat everywhere and died and so obviously it stunk up the car there's flies everywhere so his dad goes apeshit but also he's like well like father like son because when i was a bit older than you i stole my dad's trans am which is the car we see at the beginning and i took a girl out in it and i was you know it's just and you go oh okay i get it now and you know it adds to those generational layers of of fuckery to find out that he was his dad's as well shows that his dad, you know, clearly went through a midlife crisis and went, I'm going to get myself a muscle car. Yeah. Well, there's that thing as well that like Cage's performance in that flashback, like looks like it's sponsored by cocaine. Like he's kind (laughs) of like for a dad, like he's not, he's not mincing his words at all. Like he's just kind of there like, I was I was the fucking man back in the day. Like yeah. he's, he's just effing and jeffing left, right, and centre. And like even even the kid like is a bit like, well, dad, like he's like like the, the girls I used to get like back in the day. And he's kind of like bra- like bragging to his son. And that scene has one of like my only gripe, like one of my biggest gripes with this film is that like there's just con- like it's the thing with like cigarettes and lollipop, like ice lollies in films is the ice lolly just keeps changing like length (laughs) and i think that might be because i've watched it twice but like it's that thing i remember like is that and it's like the pilot to the oc i think like 
the character like uh the lead character ryan has a cigarette that just like keeps going like changing back and legs. yeah yeah back oh. and forth and um but yeah like I, I i had to get that out of my brain because <laughs> uh, otherwise i'd go mental i've got to say i didn't notice it this time around but i will look Sorry. out for it it's all good <laughs> the thing that you see on the cigarette thing it's so funny because like in films and television if a non-smoker is smoking in a scene and because I smoked for fucking, what, 15 years, nearly 20 years. Christ, yeah. Jesus, I'm terrible. I'm old. Yeah, that's how that works. <laughs> um, yeah, like, because I smoked for as long as I did, like, seeing people, like, take horrendous puffs of a cigarette in a film, and you're just like, no, you don't, you're not, <laughs> that's not a real thing. Please stop. I just don't get it. It's like, why, why would you have that person smoking if they've never smoked before? Or you'd give them a week with, like, pretend you know like the yeah. the the fact you like the morley's in in, in x bars because cigarette smoking man with the guy who played him was an ex-smoker and they had to make some basically like herbal pretend cigarettes for him so he didn't you know start jonesing for more cigarettes like you give him two weeks a crash course on cigarette smoking like sort it out well yeah there's a there's a perfect story mark maron tells about like uh him having to do cocaine i like fake oh, cocaine yeah. on, the, on the set of glow and he's like it's weird. Like that was a big part of my life for a lot, for a long time of my life. And it's like, it kind of felt weird going back to it, even yeah. just acting like, um, but yeah, as we kind of like draw things to a close, uh, is there like any other moments in this film that really stood out to you that we, you feel like we've missed? Well, no, we've, cause again, the beauty of this thing is it's, just, is it's less than 85 minutes long. You know, we've, we've covered the majority of it. Um, I, th- there's, a, so there's a point where he barks like a dog, like Nicolas Cage barks like a dog. There's a point where he's shouting the hokey pokey, because, of course, in America, it's the hokey pokey, not the hokey cokey, uh, whilst, whilst sledgehammering the, the pool table that he spent so, so long working on. And he just, yeah, just... I, the freakouts are amazing and uh, we've not brought up like the, the cinematographer for this is a guy called daniel pearl he was the cinematographer on the, the original texas chainsaw massacre he's also the reasons why alien versus predator requiem is like you can barely see anything in that film <laughs> because um way back um ridley scott said he wanted alien to look like texas chainsaw massacre in space and so the strout the brothers strauss who directed that film went oh texas chainsaw well, we'll just hire the DOP that, that did Texas Chainsaw Massacre then. And yeah, that, that's the yeah, reason why it's so damn dark. But it helped get him the job on the Marcus Nispel Friday the 13th film. Uh, and then he did The Boy and a couple more than mum and dad. But he's like, you know, he's he's worked cinematography for things like Every Breath You Take. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. You know, he's had his fair share of like massive you know, multi-million dollar music videos. Probably some of those music videos that he was cinematographer on probably had a bigger budget than this film yeah so which is bonkers so the budget for this is like it's really modest it is like seven million i want to say holy shit that's like blumhouse numbers yeah yeah like off the top of what like from reading it earlier for always the way i've got too many tabs open and now now i can't find it uh <laughs> that sounds about right that does for, for a film of this you know to for it to look the way it does as well and that's not to say it doesn't look bad i mean them then you know daniel pearl does does an amazing job with with you know what he has here but you know this is the age of you know things are shot digitally and they're shot to look a very specific way and i think it definitely suits the director's own 
visual kind of bent that this is, you know, this really frenetically paced, mm -hmm. uh, you know, film, but without losing anything. I think because you've got such a such a simple premise that you don't lose. This isn't, you know, I, I've been bringing this up a lot lately, and it's not. I'm no hate on Scorsese, but we, we covered New York, New York for the for the podcast, and that is two hours and 40 minutes of get to the fucking point <laughs> whereas this is like 80, 83 84 minutes of okay within the first 10 minutes you know what's up mm -hmm. and i think having the likes of of you know daniel pearl cinematographer having the likes of mr bill on sound design and scoring here it's just every every single part of this it's like uh it's like putting together a swiss watch or one of nicholas cage's enormous chunky watches yeah. It's... Do you notice we do get we do get one in this film? Like we get one moment where it flashes and you go, Oh, I wonder if that's uh I wonder if that's his watch. <laughs> well he's got like uh the, like so the, like when he was doing press for this as well, like Nick Cage has uh, a fantastic collection of rings and stuff like that. Oh and man. One of the things that like uh he he equated to his relationship with Brian Taylor was he said that Brian Taylor was like Kurosawa and he was like uh, Kurosawa. I, I, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but like his kind of like go-to guy Mifune. who she used to work with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's like, and like that. that's how he sees their relationship. That like there's this level of simpatico. That that's like, fantastic. If Brian, if Brian's on the phone, like I'm going to be like making a film with him. And yeah, to your point of Daniel Pearl as well, like, if you literally look at a pop artist from like the last 30 years, he's, he's worked on their music mm. video and obviously started his career with uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and weirdly like did the remake yeah. as well. Yeah. Which is like, it's an interesting one I don't, I don't. I, of those. Like cause that was a real, again, it was the Michael Bay thing as well. Cause he worked with Michael Bay and, you know, Michael Bay directed that. I would do a thing for love uh, video for, for meatloaf, but like he's, um, you know, Michael Bay produced all of those, those big remakes for of the, you know, Friday 13th, Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, from around that era. I think maybe the nightmare on Elm street one, I'm not sure, but like this whole idea of just resurrecting these these are classic horror villains, almost as classic as like the universal monsters of like Frankenstein's monster and Dracula and stuff. You know, they in the seventies and eighties really kind of created this new generation of them. And yeah, that's probably where the relationship with Marcus Nispel came from. And yeah, he's, he's an interesting, he's an interesting, got an interesting and varied career, like 250 commercials under him as well. 400 music videos. <laughs> that's insane. Yeah, it's, it's insane. Yeah. Um, well, perfect. So, would you recommend people watch? Mind Absolutely, Mind. without a shadow of a doubt. It's um, this is great, and again, it's it's sub ninety minutes, so it's it's just that it's a nice slice. It's a good kind of time frame, uh, and it's like it at no point does it really let up. There's no lag or dull bits in this. The performances are great, like Nicolas Cage, Selma Blair, and the the like. You know what? If I can watch a film that's got child actors in it that don't make me want to get some garden shears and stab myself in the face i'm a happy man i feel like i've come out of the other end of it you know you know i'm on to a winner um and yeah this one that the, even the little boy actor who you the, 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 even the little boy character who you think is going to be like oh he's going to make all the mistakes and sure early on he makes one mistake because mm -hmm. obviously he's he's a little boy but he's the one who shoots selma blair 
like you know like it's a it's, yeah, it's yeah, a flesh yeah. wound but he shoots through the door and hits him and you're like holy shit that was the biggest belly laugh i had in this film was Selma Blair's character just a bit like Tunic says, oh, nice, so you completed the midlife crisis and got a gun. Did you at least have it in a, in a lockbox? He's, yeah, well, what was the combination? Oh, the kid's birthday. And the little boy's there, just click, 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 click with his birthday on the thing. And that, I, that just did me in. I just thought it was so funny. Well, yeah, there's that great scene of him kind of like dancing around in the bedroom and a nice little like uh, taxi driver reference of him yeah. kind of like talking to himself in the mirror i had a uh, weird like having seen joker in the last you know 18 months as well mm-hmm. i just like it's just in his pants with a handgun just like yeah it's weird man <laughs> yeah and i i think this film like i again i would massively recommend this i think it's got and you can see the sensibilities of a music video uh cinema photographer in this it, it plays out like that it's it uses the kind of medium of like digital mm-hmm. film and it it it, lo- it looks it you you can kind of see it was filmed like on digital even though there's like a couple of moments at the beginning they put like a kind of like after effect grain mm-hmm. on there it's kind of like like you said right at the beginning uh, of this conversation that it, it it kind of like messes about with that 50s 60s idea of like the white picket fence and stuff like that which mm. it, it does through the title sequence and stuff like that. It's but, funny because um, even if, if this had been made, I'm saying if this had been made this year, ha ha. But like, if this had been made in 2019, even just you know a couple of years later, we'd have had a shit ton more drone shots than we see in this film. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of getting a bit like I'm, I'm sick of seeing them and everything. And I get it; it's a, it's a new tool that we're now starting to use. But like, and it doesn't matter what it is. It's a documentary. It's a romance. It's a horror. It's a sci-fi. It's fucking drone shots all over the place. And it's just like, can we just like limit this shit? And we get like a couple in this to show the suburban landscape. And it's great because they establish everything. But it's not like we're beholden to them. It's not like we end on one pulling out from the, you know, pulling out from the estate or anything. Well, perfect. So to wrap things up, I always like to ask uh, three questions. Uh, which are, does Nick Cage have bad hair in this film? I wouldn't say it's bad hair. It's definitely hair plug city by the looks of things. But, you know, I mean, I'm not going to judge. <laughs> it, you know, it, it suits him for, for, the, for the role. As an actor who likes to go to crazy places with his voice, obviously you mentioned earlier Peggy Sue Got Married, <laughs> a film that Kathleen Turner wanted Nicolas Cage sacked from. She begged Ford Coppola to get rid of him because of the voice he did. But in this does he do anything crazy with his voice? I mean, yeah, we get, he does. He barks like a dog at one point. He's the inflections he puts on, on certain words are pretty, you know, it's, it's pretty intense. You can, you can tell when he starts to kind of uh, take the lid off and let the steam escape, mm-hmm. you know, and he kind of starts to cage out. We do get a little bit of that in here. And then by that final act, you know, we, we get some, some full on cage rage, which is great. Well, yeah, it feels like a kind of uh, a fool's errand to ask the final question because this <laughs> film is very much built upon the idea of Nicolas Cage freaking out. So uh, if, you, if, you, if, if the listeners haven't understood by now, uh, I'll ask you and you can clarify for them. But if they haven't got it by now, they're fucking idiots. Please 
subscribe <laughs> and uh, never darken my doorstep again. But does Nicolas Cage freak out in Mum and Dad? Uh, the one word I put under this was throughout. <laughs> yeah, just just like this is, you know, I'd say of the 80, 83 minutes and he's on screen for probably about 50 of those. I would say 43 minutes of this is him freaking the fuck out. And it's it's really it's it's splendid. Perfect. That's uh, that's sometimes all you can ask from Nicolas Cage. Obviously, uh, that's not all he can do, but it's fun when he goes there yeah. and it's fun when it's deserved. That's the one, man. Yeah. When it's when it's a deserved thing, when it's not like when it's when it's a freak out for a paycheck, we can all tell, you know, uh, yeah. I, I, I probably, it's, it's probably something like akin to like, you know, if you're if you're if your significant other was a porn star. And you're watching, you watch them and you're like, well, they're enjoying it. But it's not the same as when you're in love. And it's the same <laughs> with Nicolas Cage in, you know, in a film like this. You can tell that he, he loves the, the source material and he's, he's having fun with it. And he's not Bangkok dangerousing up all over himself. Oh, God. Uh, let's hope he never Bangkok dangerouses over anyone uh, ever again. <laughs> Especially not Liam Dempsey. No. Because, uh, but at the same time, I, I, the Pang brothers, if you are listening, if you do do a Bangkok Dangerous 2, if you have a germ of an idea, please make it just so I can drag Liam Dempsey back, back. on this podcast sure. to talk about it. And uh, I don't know. I think at that point, he will probably never speak to me <laughs> again. Uh, so... Perfect, Daryl. Where can people find you and Sudden Double Deep online? So anywhere where you get podcasts, we are Sudden Double Deep. We are, we watch three films linked by a word in the title. Our first episode, the word was impact. So sudden impact, double impact, deep impact. You get the idea. Um, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SDD Film Podcast. Perfect. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation with you, Daryl. And uh, I'm sure at some point uh, I'll get you back on. We'll to... definitely, and we'll <laughs> definitely have you on on our on our show. We'll we're going to say we're going to make make a reality of uh, of a triple bill of Nicolas Cage on our on our show at some point soon. Perfect. I, <laughs> I, 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 I would I would be absolutely honoured, but at the same time, I can't think of anything worse then to have to sit through uh, some of the potential Nick Cage films that we've discussed. <laughs> uh, but I'll leave that as a, as, as a tease for what could potentially be. Perfect. Wicked. And there we go, guys. Both me and Daryl came out the other side with our lives intact. Neither of us were murdered by our parents or neither of us were murdered by this film. Uh, as you heard, we both really enjoyed it. If you, however, feel differently about this film and want to get in touch and to tell us why we were wrong, please do so on social media at Caged In Pod on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can always drop us an email, which is cagedinpod at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to support this podcast in any way, you can always just share it, rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or you can head on over to Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash caged in pod, or you can always go over to caged in limitedrun.com to buy one of the fantastic Tim Hornsby designed Superman caged in 
uh, art prints. Uh, each one is hand numbered and has a unique Nicolas Cage quote on the back. All done by me. Tim just supplied the amazing, not just, Tim supplied the amazing artwork. I just then wrote on the back of them, which uh, they're great though. Uh, yeah, please, 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 please do buy them. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, Patreon. Uh, soon I will be launching a thing called Caged In Companions, which will be films that kind of mirror what's going on in the films. Uh, that Nick Cage has been in so it might be something like as simple as National Treasure and it will be an Indiana Jones film something as simple as that or Leaving Las Vegas will be Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas you get the point Uh, coming up next week I will have the amazing Brad Hansen who has been dragged from the basement of the evolution of horror podcast as he seems to only feature on their patreon episodes or the also rants and giving him a full a full hour plus to discuss vengeance a love story with me so please do be sure to join into that one because it's, it's it's fun it's fun yeah tune in uh and listen to that one brad brad was an amazing guest and as always I have been Petrus Patsilvus. I have been caged in. You have been amazing. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Copal Connections, A Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.